the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, in a unique bout of transparency, Washington, D.C. changes name to Washington, D. Swamp. In related news, Washington Redskins become Hyattsville Oystermen and get even more guff from offended invertebrates, particularly those easily triggered cephalopods. Plus, we continue with a complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have part two of the two-part interview with John Ringo and Mike Massa talking about their new entry in the Black Tide Rising series, River of Night. This one is the follow-up to Valley of the Shadows, which turned our attention to Tom Smith, brother of Steve Smith, from earlier books, and Tom's cohorts, who are dealing with the zombie apocalypse in New York, But in this one, Tom and his forces escape from New York and head for Site Blue and ultimately the Tennessee River TVA Dam, where there's a chance to restart civilization. But along the way, the group faces stiff resistance from rogue humans as well as zombie hordes. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The July E-Arcs are available. Now, an E-Arc is the sound your fashion-conscious daughter makes when she sees that you put her new Lily Pulitzer travel mug in the dishwasher, and it is all foggy now and ruined. No, no, no. An E-Arc is an electronic advanced reader copy of a book that will come out several months from now in print and regular e-book form. You can get your favorite series latest or author's latest months in advance, albeit with a few typos along the way since these have been edited but not quite proofread yet. Out in July in EARC form is The Waters and the Wild by Mercedes Lackey and Rosemary Edgehill. When Olivia accepts swimming star Blake's invitation to the Adirondacks Resort Camp of Lake Indoor, it quickly becomes clear that all is not as it seems at the 100-year-old resort. Not only is Blake not the guy... Olivia thought he was. There's something far more sinister afoot. There is something lying beneath the waters of Lake Endor, something not of this world. Also out in New York is Antediluvian by Will McCarthy. In a brilliant and dangerous brain-hacking experiment, Harv Leonel and Tara McCherry are about to discover entire lifetimes of human memory coded in our genes and reveal ancient legends from knights and trolls to flood myths to the birth of humanity itself that are very real and very deadly. Finally out in Eark right now is Straight Out of Deadwood, edited by David Boop. Saddle up and venture to the wild frontier town of Deadwood and its creepy environs. The West that once was rides again, but this time with the West that could have been, chasing after like a spitting hellcat on its tail. Stories by Charlene Harris, Mike Resnick, and many more. Straight out of Deadwood, E-Arc, edited by David Boop, Antediluvian E-Arc, by Will McCarthy, and The Waters in the Wild by Mercedes Lackey and Rosemary Edgehill E-Arc are now available exclusively at Bain.com. Get them and read them and rejoice.
This is part two of a two-part interview with John Ringo and Mike Massa, authors of River of Night. Part one is available last time on the podcast. I want to welcome John Ringo and Mike Massa back to the podcast. Hi, how's it going, guys? Hey, we actually both made it this time. And I've got a fresh cup of coffee, so I'm good. <laughs> hey, Tony. Hey, John. Glad to be here. I got my Diet Coke lined up. Very excellent. Very excellent. Okay. Well, uh, John, let me just uh, talk a little bit about your all's backgrounds. Um, John Ringo brings fighting to life, as we say in the bio um, on uh, River of Night. He is the New York Times, and it's true. He is the New York Times bestselling author of the Legacy of the Aldenata series, the Paladin of Shadow series, the Special Circumstances series, and Looking Glass series, uh, probably a couple other series in there that uh, we could mention. John has a co-authored four novels in the Empire Man series, also with um, New York Times bestselling author David Weber, and is the co-author of three novels in Larry Correa's bestselling Monster Hunter International series, the Monster Hunter memoir novels, um, which uh, one of the mass markets on that is, I think the final one is out this month as well, um, which is what? Uh, it's the New Orleans one, right? Yeah. That's one of the two New Orleans John's science-based zombie apocalypse Black Tade Rising series includes Under a Graveyard Sky, To Sail a Darkling Sea, Islands of Rage and Hope, Strands of Sorrow, and The Valley of Shadows, co-authored with Mike Massa, um, as well as story anthology Black Tide Rising, co-edited with Gary Poole. He's a veteran of the 82nd Airborne and lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mike Massa has lived a diverse and adventurous life, including stints as a Navy SEAL officer. I thought you were you were an officer, huh? Yeah, I was. Not. I was. Oh, okay. Good folk. <laughs> right. Well, that's too bad. Anyway, an international investment banker and internet uh, technologist, which is what he does now. He counts his greatest adventure, well, in addition to being a, an excellent writer, um, he counts his greatest adventures as marriage and parenthood. Massa is currently a university cyber security researcher consulted by governments, Fortune 500 companies, and net and high net worth families on issues of privacy, resilience, and disaster recovery. He lives. He lived outside the U.S. for many years, plus military deployments, and has traveled to over 80 country countries. My, uh, Mike lives in Virginia. Um, and out now at booksellers everywhere is the sequel to The Valley of Shadows, which is called The River of Night. And uh, right now it is the number one best-selling science fiction hardcover in America. The thing about it is that the electrical industry is a constant source of, of industrial acts. Uh, deadly industrial act. And so any electrician, any electrical engineer with any experience whatsoever has an enormous list of ways that they know of that people have died. And so if you have a situation where you, you have a large number of people who have to die, the person to go to is an electrical engineer because they'll just say, well, give me enough electricity and I can kill as many as you want. Um, <laughs> you don't. One of the great quotes that John put in there is uh, one of the operators at this electrical plant 
uh, is warning new arrivals away from large swaths of land around the dam, and they go, what's, I mean, have you mined it? Are there explosives? And she says, no, it's, it's one big series of industrial accidents waiting to happen. You know, besides, I'm, I'm an engineer with 30 megawatts of power. Explosives would be redundant. <laughs> yeah, that's still in there. Don't worry. It's a great line. So, so, I will, uh, Mr. Mr. Smith, I am an electrical engineer with 30 megawatts of power at my disposal. Explosives would be redundant. <laughs> yeah. Those dams are cool. Um, the... Uh, the amount of energy that a uh, that a TVA dam puts out is 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 mind blowing, right? It's well, uh, yeah. I mean, I got I actually got interested in electrical in hydroelectric dams because of a completely different series. Um, but once I started taking a look at them, and you know, it, everybody knows about hydroelectric dams too. Knows, I mean, people who listen to this podcast know about hydroelectric. Okay. Um, but the various ways that the work and the size of them, I always thought that CBA had some in the United States. It turns out, no. The big dams are, are on the Columbia River, which makes sense. Um, but, uh, you know, checking out Watts Bar and walking around the area and taking a look at everything and taking a look at the numbers. It's it's a surprisingly small footprint for as much power as it um, And there was discussion of using the nuclear power plant right next to the dam. But in the situation, you know, we talked with people who work in the nuclear plant. And uh, um, one of the problems is nuclear power plants require a lot of people to operating a lot of their parts and lots. Also, so once it was clear that the fall was coming, the order was given to shut all the new. And there's some question about whether there are survivors in the goal center or not. Um, the people on the dam don't know, and the and the, the nuclear power plant is literally, uh, you know, if if you got somebody to hit a home run baseball, that. Um, and they they have no idea if there's anybody alive. They're assuming none, but they could be because nuclear power plant uh, centers are actually set up for long-term supply. Um, so if you know, even today, if something big happens, the people who are in the nuclear power plant control center are prepared to stay there for as long. You know, they've got five years food, water, and shelter. Um, just ready to go. Uh, yeah, I, I, I did a lot of research on I did a lot of research on nuclear power plants as part of this homework uh, the homework for this book, and uh, the power plants are surrounded by a, tr a large area uh, which is called the owner zone. It's basically it's owned by the utility, and the closer you get to the actual uh, generators and reactors, it becomes increasingly sensitive until you reach something called the exclusion zone. And I actually came across a security measures training book online for a currently operating uh, nuclear reactor complex in the United States. I won't name which one or where to find it because it probably shouldn't be there. You know, completely on class and available on the Internet uh, if you were searching um, in a determined way. And uh, it 
outright states that if they had this kind of emergency, uh, you do not want to be a person trying to get in, even casually, even if you think you belong there, because their protocols are, are of the nature of, uh, after a certain level of security, anybody trying to get in that isn't in already is presumed to be hostile. And uh, I, I, I won't go into details of my, my former professional experience uh, either, uh, for the, the military or for the government, except to say that that's congruent with what I know from when I had that kind of job uh, adjacent to those sorts of responsibilities. So we we just accepted that we weren't going to go into a lot of detail about that. But uh, if there's any hand wavium, it is the least needed as far as our treatment on the nuclear power plants. Perfectly open source, uh, unclassed detail about nuclear power plants, they can't operate unless there's a load for them to uh, to feed. So if there's no electricity to go, you can't safely spin that thing and keep it critical indefinitely. There has to be somewhere for the power to go. And if you don't have, and that's why the, one of the biggest uh, disasters that can befall a plant or disaster, um, emergencies that can befall a plant is something called loss of load, which means all of a sudden there's nowhere for the juice to go. What the hell do you do? And I'm, I'm grotesquely simplifying the language just to be uh, brief from my remarks. But yeah, the, the nuclear power plants are an interesting asset that, uh, that John and his collaborators may explore in future books, but they're definitely there. And some of them are going to be yeah. attacked. Yeah. Well, we can uh, – actually, we've got uh, some really cool nonfiction articles by uh, former nuclear plant inspector uh, Jim Bell on the on the band.com website that has a lot of cool stuff as well. Um, so uh, what happens when the map is uh, found is that um, this, this other great character in, in our um, – semi-love interest, but also a heroine in the book, uh, Risky Kabayeva. Um, she decides yeah. that she doesn't want the gleaners taking this little girl that they've found away and putting her in uh, in a bad place. Um, tell us a little bit about Risky. And, and she, she sort of, she really reminds me of some of the characters from the ghost book as, books as well. I don't know if that... There's a reason for that. I, 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 one of the things is, uh, those of you who are not, uh, you know, 100% John Ringo fans, I do not recommend the ghost books um, because there are 50 shades of guns. Um, but uh, uh, they they were extraordinarily popular books. It's my most popular series. Um, and uh, in, in that, you have a, a tribe in the country of Georgia called the Kildara. And the Kildara are leftover ranking guards who have been uh, breeding themselves specifically to warriors for thousands of years. Um, and, or over a thousand years, better way of phrase. And so there's this group of farmers who, when a special operations guy drops in on, American special operations guy drops in on by the farm, um, he turns them, he's just thinking he's turning them into a local militia that's world-class special operations, private military. Um, so the Keldara have always have, are, are a real favorite among serious John Ringo. Um, I like to refer to the Keldara as the Viking Brigade Duke because it, it, <laughs> it doesn't exist, you know. Uh, Mike Harmon accidentally went through a gate that only opens every 200 years. You know, that's 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 real. But uh, uh, the thing about it is, is 
I have not decided whether there is a crossover between the Black Tide universe and the Keldari universe or not. Uh, I actually wrote part of the Keldari universe in my book. But especially in the Tom Smith books, there are constant references that give the impression that the Keldara exists in the Black Knight universe um, without absolutely specifying. But it's, 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 little, it's little cameo references and sideline things that go on in these books that you're like, oh, okay, so the Keldara do exist. So Risky, at one point, you know, somebody says, so you're Russian, and she says, I don't really know what I am. And she talks about stuff and her earliest childhood memory. And anybody who has read the Gildara and know the Gildara look at it and go, oh, no wonder she's so badass, she's fucking Gildara. Right? Because even the Gildara women are about as dangerous as that. Um, so, is Risky Gildara? Is she not Gildara? Uh, the guy who controls both universes won't say. <laughs> <laughs> but she's She's uh, very similar to Kelbara. Well, so that's what why you've got know that about her is that she's a, she's a, what we do know about her from the from Valley of Shadows is that she's uh, an adult survivor of someone that's been uh, trafficked into New York City years prior and was initially you know, a plaything and then later a confidant lover and then later because of her natural ability and frankly the relationship she had with her then boss. Um, became uh, sort of a assistant, not an executive assistant, but someone like a confidant. And then as the fall occurred, you know, her ideas, she, he kept going back to her ideas in any event. Um, but she has a real uh, hard-on, if you will, for sexual trafficking. Um, and uh, during the standoff, before the shooting starts, uh, what, what happens is um, uh, a minor comes running, uh, being chased by a bunch of, you know, we learned that they're gleaners. They're wearing firemen's coats, and she calls them scary firemen. And she goes running to this other group of people that includes uh, an, one or two obvious women, and she runs straight at Risky and grabs her. And, of course, this triggers Risky in all the most dangerous ways, and she's just not having it. And you know, Tom is pragmatic. He's like, look, that's, this is terrible, but this is not a fight we can win. We're gonna, if we try and fight, we're going to lose. And she's like, yeah, we're not giving her back. That's that. He's like, I don't, if we fight now, we're, we're gonna, people are going to die. I'm, you, know, you could die. We could all die here. Is this worth fighting for? And she goes, is there anything else worth fighting for? And uh, he doesn't really have an answer for that. Because at that point, uh, the, uh, what I'll call the intermediate level boss, this where a video game shows up and he wants the girl back. And things go sideways from there. But she's a, she's a complex person. She's very much not a damsel in distress, although she is entirely, um, uh, how, how to describe this without pissing people off. She's aware that she's a woman. She's glad that she's a woman. She's perfectly okay with being a woman. Uh, and she, she takes the world on her terms, but pragmatically um, is the best way that I can describe it. And like a lot of authors do, wait, wait you borrow from people that you know. A way to describe Sorry, go ahead. is help. Uh, a way to describe risky is the way that Heinlein would describe a lifelong sexually trafficked female who nonetheless has managed to retain a degree of sense and uh, 
you know, it. she has been trafficked most of her life, but she rises above it. Um, you know, this is, this is a sexually trafficked Heinlein. You know, she is somebody who is always going to survive and yet at the same time retain a central moral code, um, yeah, which is very, very difficult to do in that lifestyle. Um, but she retains the central moral code. And when you cross that moral code, you have a choice of killing her or she's going or You have a choice of stopping or killing her or she's going to kill you. Um, she's not Katia, uh, if, for those people who read the ghost. Um, she's had Katia's lifestyle, but she's, she she is functionally Keldara. And the Keldara, they're survivors, and you can feed them, you can do anything you want to them, and they're just going to spring back. And if you tick them off enough, they'll kill you. And that's risky. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. She's, had, she's had a hellish life, and she just keeps plowing them on. Anyway, that's Risky. I like Risky as a character. Risky was actually Tom's character, and I really like Risky. Because uh, she's not she's not any sort of an exact stereotype. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of stereotypes of that sort of that sort of thing and she doesn't fit any of them. Yeah, and she's a love interest for Tom, uh, as well, who Unlike Steve, uh, is unmarried and unattached as we begin the <laughs> the sub series. He's also yeah, far she, less. Uh, Tom, uh, Tom very much. Yeah. Sorry, Tom go ahead. Is far less. It, Tom is far less idealistic than Steve. Steve is, Steve is still an idealist. Tom is not. He's a pragmatist. He's absolute one hundred percent pragmatist. Who, if you read the first books, to a certain extent, um, sold his soul quite happily to a bank that he considered to be very evil. Um, oh, if you really read between lines of the first book, he recognizes the Bank of the Americas is just heartless sharks, and he's fine with being a heartless shark. And in the second book, the question is, become, does he continue to be a heartless shark for Bank of America, or does he rise above that? Uh, bank of the Americas, sorry. Um, or does he rise above that? Uh, you know, that's the that is the challenge for him. And so the scene with Risky uh, that involves uh, Elf, the the young girl, from his perspective, sacrificing a young girl to avoid a firefight, that's no big deal. He, he it's 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 a no brainer that of course you don't get into a firefight over the She's not part of our group. She's unimportant to us. Hell, he sacrificed members of his group. If that's what it took to keep out of a firefight, continue on, continue with his mission. He's very, very pragmatic, and at a certain level, he's very, very cold-hearted. And it takes him a while to break out of that. Um, and and that is the character growth of Tom Smith. That he realizes he needs to rise above that. He needs to be, he needs to be more of a person. Um, he was considering himself a central character. Or a, a secondary character in this pageant, if you will, in this grand disaster. Where are we going forward? I am a secondary character. How do I support? And he realizes by the end of the book, no, I have to become a primary. Um, yeah. You know, this has to be about something more than just 
uh, originally we were going to call, because this is originally one book, we were going to call it more than salts. Um, you know, that, that he's more than just an employee of the bank. Um, and, you know, nobody likes to try yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and risky. Risky provides that. Uh, Risky provides the the conscience that he lacked in a way. So, in a way, yeah. Risky really does. Risky reminds him that uh, that there's more to life than nature, um, and so you know that is that's sort of the path that he has to tread. Of you know. Fighting people, spending my flu, doing this, that's just kind of his job. But then he realizes that he has to rise above himself. Um, yeah, which he doesn't, which, which he eventually does. And it's Risky who really says, you know, got to be more than who you are. Right she, I, I don't think at any point she says that directly. But, but it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's funny. It's the, the special operations guy actually gets his, uh, gets reminded that there's more to life than simply being a gun hand, um, you know, through a girl who is in a whore most of her life. And, and still, despite having been a whore most of her life, has more morals. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about someone who has... Yeah, do... Go ahead. Go ahead. You, you first. No, Mike. You, you... No, Mike, go. But you were about to say something. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, it's really interesting that the, the person with the least advantage and who's had to, had to live through the darkest, um, um, the darkest existence with the least amount of privilege, in fact, almost none, and, and be a plaything and, and worse, is the person who retained her moral center, while the other character who basically had everything going for him was, like you said, very... Uh, was was pragmatic to the point of being nihilist, you know. It, it's uh, and being totally mission focused, arguably to a morally corrupt, however essential it might be in terms of infrastructure organization. It was it was, it was a it was a great contrast, uh, and it was it was fun to watch. Well, fun it was it was it gratifying to watch Smith begin to change because we did a lot of rewriting and revising um, on Tom. Um, in part because he had to grow, and at the same time, you, it can't happen all at once. No, you just don't flip a switch and everything occurs. But he goes through a series of shocks, um, and after some of them, in fact, one of them entirely because of Risky's choices that he doesn't make, um, they they have the, there's the basis for them to exchange words, and uh, it was it was good. That the ball, you were able to write the book where Tom turns it around. So you were saying, Tony. Yeah, that's. I mean, that is really the heart of the uh, character growth in the book. Uh, there is one character, another one of the bad guys, uh, who uh, absolutely lacks any conscience. Um, she seems sort of a psychopath. Um, who is Joanna Joanna Kahn, um or Cohn? Uh, tell us a little bit about her, because it, also it allows you to do a little bit of satire on identity politics, which I really appreciated as well. So, so uh, you had, Joanna Cohn is a sociopath. Not a, she recruits psychopaths, but she's a sociopath, okay, and yeah. uh, she's 
She's actually based, she's an amalgamation of two people that I know in real life um, who are actually, have, have done the things that she's uh, both uh, overtly characterized as doing and it, it's, an, it's directly implicated that she's done. Uh, and so she's a genuinely scary person based on two genuinely scary people that I've known, uh, one of whom actually worked for a really big bank in a position of some responsibility. So she's, you know, for every fine cat, you have to have a fine rat. And she has a relationship with Tom that goes back to the first book. But she's formerly the uh, the director of crisis management for the city of New York, which I, I may be getting the title slightly off, or I may have altered it deliberately. Um, but there's a series of departments that work for the mayor, an executive council, if you will, one of which is this role. And uh, she rose through the ranks and discovered that she very much liked the responsibility. She liked the ability to broker information and assistance. And she was part of this vaccine, illegal vaccine manufacturing cabal that the gangsters and the cops and the city administration through Joanna and the banks all collaborated within for the purposes of making vaccine as fast as they could to try and keep the city running for as long as they could because without an economic engine uh, still grinding along at some level, the fall would have happened much more rapidly. But they actually had to hope to sort of stop it midway or, or, or fence it off, and they failed, as readers of the Valley of Shadow will know. So she survived, and she was, one on the, she was literally on the last helicopter out, and she watched everything come apart beneath her, and she's like, all right, well, I'm just going to follow the plan that Smith set up, except since he's not around, uh, maybe I'll be the person in charge. And other members of the bank, uh, notably Paul Roon, that ended up at Site Blue with Joanna and some of her staff um, are not necessarily aligned with her plan, and yet survival is a team sport, and she very cannily, knowing politics and personal relations and thinking a little further ahead than your average operator, uh, has the whip hand, if you will. Yeah, and Paul is and, uh, and her, is, is a main her, character in the book, and he's um, he's really likable, but he's also he's not the leader that Tom is. He's no, he's no, not. Paul's he, very he, much a secondary character, and 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 he's not only a secondary character, but he is he is written as a person who will always be. Uh, you know, he's a manager, but he's not an executive. Uh, although he, he works in an executive position in the bank, um, he is a person who takes orders and then expands upon them intelligently, as opposed to a person who is the sort of person who, who is absolutely 100% self-directed. Um, you know, Tom Smith is written as a very self-directed character. Paul Smith is written as a person, as a, a human being, who is always going to be the extremely capable supporter. Um, and so when he's in a situation where somebody else has announced they're in charge, he just becomes the extremely capable of um, until he realizes that this is not a person that he wants to be a capable of to, and then, bye. Um, yeah, Paul, Paul Rude so is an example of a guy. <laughs> no, you won't. Keep going. I was going to say, Paul, uh, a really good example, uh, a way to distinguish between the executive leader and the capable manager and subordinate is that it can be very difficult to get inside the decision loop 
of a leader who's thinking ahead several steps and, and playing uh, both an economic and a kinetic and a political game, whereas the capable subordinate is usually thinking only in, in one paradigm and, and only forward a fairly limited calendar time. And so Paul is endlessly reacting to Joanna, and Joanna is very much a heavy thinker. Just because she's a sociopath doesn't make her stupid. In fact, quite the opposite. She, she knows who she is. She's perfectly okay with it, and she's been working and compensating and overcoming the downside while fully taking advantage of the upside of her personality type. Yeah, you know, Joanna so has really so much to it. She's absolutely amoral, um, and and you know she's perfectly comfortable with it. You know, we were talking before about Tom Smith versus Risky, and how Tom Smith had to come to the to, to the understanding that he had to be somebody greater, um, and that he he had to develop a moral conscience. Um, and uh, Joanna is somebody who just threw aside the whole concept of moral. She doesn't care. Now she fakes caring very well. Um, and she talks about, you know, for the children and that sort of thing. Um, but she doesn't actually mean it. It's, it's all about power. It's Tom, uh, pardon me, Mike, you have a tendency to uh, say a lot of things, but if you don't actually work in the, the current managerial field, it's sometimes hard to pick them apart. But I loved when you mentioned that, that she thinks terms of, uh, uh, you know, the financial aspects, the genetic aspects, and I can't remember what, uh, what the third one. The, the political. Financial aspects and the political aspects, right? Um, and, and it is an example, you know, sometimes when I talk about politics, I say that there are three legs to politics, um, hard power, soft power, and economic. Um, but all, all politics come down to an interplay of those three. Uh, but what's really funny about it was, and I didn't realize this, I've talked about this on panels, I've talked about it on podcasts when it comes up. Um, what's really funny about it is, is that there's actually a song about it, and I had not thought, I, I had not put the two together. But what Mike was just think, saying is that Paul Rune thinks in terms of, you know, getting this job done and, you know, fixing the situation. And he's, he's kind of looking at things in a correct way, whereas Joanna is looking at the future. All of it. Um, but those, those interplay of those three things, the way that Mike put it was uh, the financial, the kinetic, political, and I talk about hard power, soft power, and economics. Uh, Warren Zevon phrased the best of all, lawyers, guns, and money. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, that's what all politics is about, lawyers, guns, and money. Um, the order is wrong. If, if you ever happen to get into a bad situation, it's lawyers, money, then guns. Um, but, uh, that's, yeah, yeah and, and, and basically that's, that's, that's the situation that they're in. Is they need somebody to send lawyers, guns, and money because the shit has its fans. <laughs> Not the lawyers are gonna be. Well, Joanna, um, as she tries to sort of, she has a little coup. Uh, it's it feels to me like the HR department staged a coup, um, and and took yeah, over yeah. site blue. The the HR department staged a pooch. 
and tried to run things. It's basically what it comes down to. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 it was not a situation that was going to be able to continue in, in those conditions. Because one of the things that we really didn't focus on with Site Blue was that a lot of the people were local. And, uh, and uh, Mike and I had kind of a back and forth on, on several things uh, on, on some of the issues that would occur in that local area. Um, because I understood the culture and the people of that area. Uh, Mike, of course, has worked primarily in urban areas, has worked primarily um, in in uh, sort of high-end business. And as everybody knows, there's a certain culture that surrounds him. Mike is not necessarily closely associated with him, but he's so used to that that sometimes he doesn't realize that there are completely different cultures. Um, sorry, Mike, you don't. <laughs> um, and one of the things that was going to happen for too long at Site Blue would be a pooch on the part of the refugee. They'd be looking at it going, this lady's nuts. And all the stuff that she's talking about, that may work up in Yankeeville, but it don't work down here. Uh-uh. <laughs> so the truth was, even if everything had come apart, Joanna wasn't going to last. She didn't realize that because she came out of the same culture. But she was surrounded by Tennessee. Um, one of the things that one of the, uh, I've got some friends who are from Texas, and I kind of like to rib them because I go, "You realize, of course, that it was Tennessee that talked to Texas about the fight." And, and they look at me and they're like, "What?" And I go, "Yeah, how many Texans were there at the Alamo?" Because almost the entire force of the Alamo was from Tennessee. Um, you know, so Joanna Joanna Cohn was not going to last real long anyway. She didn't realize, it. and it's not something that we wrote in no, the we book. We uh, because it, it would have been a distraction. We, there there were aspects we we kind of hinted at, right? Um, but everybody that that all of these non-player characters, okay, all of these uh, extras that had gathered at Night Blue that were listening to Joanna and her plans for the future, they're Southern. They're, first of all, they've been in a disaster. Most of their families are lost. They're, they're trying to reconnect with people. But they're still Southerners, and they're listening to her and going, oh, so she's one of those. Well, we'll play along for now because that's what we do, and we're not going to say much because we don't. But at a certain point, yeah, this is over. <laughs> Well, we we get a better sense for that, John, with the people in Spring in Spring City, don't we? Yeah, we we do. Um, but the refugees that came in the Sky Blue would have been things the same, and they're just being yeah. polite, basically. Uh, yeah. Well, she does we're, do we're some nasty stuff while she's in power, um, especially but it's not to Paul. Very clear. Um, yeah. yeah, but 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 she's being she's being uh, she's being careful about not making that clear. Um, not obvious. Yeah. And she destroys poor Kendra's life for a while, who's a great character as well. So, yeah, Kendra is, uh, Kendra is shell shocked. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. 
I was going to say, I, I, I feel mind. bad for Kendra because she's, she was shell-shocked. You know, she was a, a mid-level um, you know, junior executive, high-end manager uh, at the bank. She worked for and reported directly to Tom. Uh, as the city came apart, she had real issues with how they were making vaccine. Uh, she was a, a, an urban dweller who was an exposed to really serious violence as, the, as everything came apart. And she, you know, she was totally out of her comfort zone. Uh, but she formed an attachment to another character. Uh, in a variety of ways, things go sideways, and uh, her you know, she sort of retreats into this hard and brittle shell, and ends up working for um, for Cohen because that's pretty much at this point the only way out. There, Site Blue is completely unaware that Tom Smith is even alive, let alone fighting his way towards them, um, and so there's you know, there's no very limited uh, to no communications that are possible at, at this stage of the. Uh, the collapse of, of the various pieces of infrastructure as we've written it in the southeastern United States. And uh, Cohen is a master at uh, manipulating people around her, and Kendra is susceptible. I don't want to go too far because she plays an important role in the latter third of the book, and I don't want to get, uh, give too much away. Uh, but I enjoyed writing her, and I enjoyed her character evolution as well. Um, in the event that there's a uh, there are further books that explore these characters in greater depth, she might be a fun one to, to continue working with. Yeah, yeah, she's cool. Well, yeah, well let's, that's something let's that we've talk about. about Go ahead. Mike, yeah. that's something we've got to talk about because this book did well enough that it's personally reasonable for us to go back and pitch, pitch it third. <laughs> um, and I've got I've yeah. got an idea on that. I agree. figure out how to do it. Because um, at a certain point, you realize that there's going to have to be a link-up between the two Smith sides. Um, and I'm agree. thinking about actually. I, I I'm thinking about the third book. I'm not too sure that we can do the link on that. Um, but uh, at some point we've got to do a link. Um, anyway. Oh, that sounds very well, fun. You got to talk to the, you got to talk to Tony Weiskopf about that. Yeah, I would um, I would read that book. So. <laughs> Well, I, 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 Tony, Tony and I and Mike Williams talked about a book at Liberty, and we we haven't contracted on that, so we don't want to talk about it. Um, Tony has some issues with a Williams character, and I think we solved that. Um, you know, because she didn't like the character that. A lot of people liked that character a lot. Tony had issues, but the thing about it is, in a novel, unlike a short story. In short stories, you can have a uh, character go through character growth, but it's it's kind of a compressed character growth, and it's not a very complete, usually. Um, as Mike said, you can't have somebody suddenly flip over. You can have people toggle over under certain circumstances. We have a very direct toggle over in River of Night. The character goes, the character had been a good guy, goes to being a bad guy, realizes he's Whoops. And uh, anyway, so uh, we were talking about Williams, some character. It, I would anticipate that before the novel that I'm thinking about comes out, that hopefully that Williams, that there's actually an overlap between those two. Because um, the, the novel that I've been thinking about for a long time, you try to keep sister saw that will 
book is, uh, uh, I, I want to call it Old Black Water, um, but that would give the impression of Blackwater PMC or something like that. Um, but it's about opening up the Mississippi River. And uh, that would be an opportunity for this to rejoin Tennessee eventually. Tennessee, yeah. the Mississippi, Ohio, and the Missouri all come together with 100 miles. Um, it's, it's this little cluster uh, that, from the point of view of river transport in the United States, probably the most important 200-mile diameter circle in the United States. Economically, one of the most important 200 miles in the world. And most people don't realize that. Um, yeah, well, you can fortunately, uh, Ulysses Grant realized that. Yeah, I mean, you could nuke Manhattan, and we could build another stock exchange. But, yeah. you know, that particular cluster of rivers is hugely important. Yeah. Um, and well, I hope so you... That, anyway. Yeah, I hope you do that. I, that book you wrote with Mike Williamson, uh, The Hero, is really, it's a really little gem. It's a great little uh, piece, by the way. People should go read that. Well, I when I was envisioning this universe, the the Black Tide Rising, universe, one of the one of the little side stories that I had was called the Gulf Coast Breaking, and it was the guys that were semi being supported by the U.S. government that were clearing the Gulf Coast, which just takes a zillion little inlets, small towns, and um, you know all the you know the the Florida man meme, you know. Florida uh-huh. man uh, arrested for biting alligator. Naked Florida man arrested for biting alligator. Um, about half of those occur somewhere on the Gulf Coast of Florida, um, because that's what just what the Gulf Coast of Florida is like. It's it's just the the characters that you run into on the Gulf Coast of Florida are the most interesting people in the world. From the point of view of they're really interesting. I not necessarily want to be friends with them, but really interesting. Guy, um, and uh, so uh, clearing all of that area would be very, very funny. Um, but uh, anyway, so that would continue up through, you know, Louisiana. So if you think about the cro- uh, a bunch of guys who are clearing inlets along the coast of Florida in airboats and small boats mounted with machine guns. Um, you know, just just think about the Florida man being crossed with the people from Swamp People. You ever see the, the, the History Channel, the story, the Swamp People uh, reality TV show about hunting alligators? Mm-hmm. You ever seen that? Yeah. Um, yep. Take Florida man name, cross it with the people from Swamp People armed with heavy machine guns. Yeah. Okay. Well, Clearing those people are also known as, as those people are also known as my relatives, by the way. <laughs> so. Oh, okay. You know exactly what I'm talking about. My brother oh, yeah. Bob lives in lives down there, and he has finally found his niche. And I I've said for years that Bob was brought, born in the wrong century. He should have been born in the 16th century. So he was a pirate, and he has finally found his home on the Gulf Coast of Florida. That is his natural place. Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway. One other, uh, one other thing I want to talk about before we move go is um, some of the some of the foot soldiers of of um, Tom who are really cool characters in their own right, um, especially uh, Kathy Estroga and uh, and Worf Copley. Especially, uh, I, I I really love that there's the appendix that is. Uh, can 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 y'all tell us about Estroga's do's and don'ts for the zombie apocalypse? Her rule book. I think uh, I think John is the uh, well, the uh, authorized spec four here should be the first speaker. <laughs> well, one of the one of the things uh, going back, we we've, we've mentioned the anthology a couple of times. The first anthology was Black Tide Rising. The second anthology was Poison Fall. And those anthologies were primarily put together by. Oh, does it say Gary Poole on the cover of Kelly Long? Gary Poole, right? Yeah. It's um, Gary Poole, yeah. primarily Gary, Gary Poole. Yes. Um, <laughs> and Gary Poole is... Uh, <coughs> Gary Poole was sort of in the Army. Um, I'd say sort of because he was a... He went from basic training to being a drill corporal to being a, a drill instructor uh, at uh, Fort Sill. So he spent his whole time in the Army in trade off. So I don't actually count that as actually in the Army. Um, I, I rib him about that all the time. As a matter of fact, I ribbed him in, uh, on a panel at Liberty. Um, but uh, so I, it, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, he's actually my landlord because uh, my wife insists on renting We rent his wife's home. Um, and uh, so. Uh, anyway, he, we put this together, and he was an E4, I was an E4, and there's this whole meme in the military, uh, in the Army about, and the 5th and Navy about the E4 mafia. And so, Mike Massa was a, Mike, you were a lieutenant, right? Yeah, I got as an O3. Yeah, you were a lieutenant, which yeah. is, uh, in the Army or the Marines would be a captain. Um, and one of our other writers, Casey Azell, at the time was a captain and now a major in the Air Force. And so uh, there was this running gag with the – and we, we, there were other authors in it, officers, and the running gag about the, the anthology was that it was being run by the Evil Mafia. Uh, but it was, it was Gary and I doing the editing on it and – Choosing the stories and everything else, so it's the E4 Mafia running, running. Um, so, because of this, this, this mimetic, this, this joke mimetic in the military, it was uh, 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 Mike actually introduced the whole thing about uh, Astroga being, you know, in the E4 Mafia. The problem was Astroga came out of the first book under a graveyard sky. And she was actually in E3, which doesn't count. It's enlisted mafia, sure, but it doesn't count as E4 mafia. Um, so we actually had to figure out a way to promote her to E4 in the book, in the first book, uh, Valley of Shadows, which is one of those just extremely bizarre scenes that in any truly, truly god-awful disaster, whether it's a military disaster or uh, a humanitarian disaster like this. Um, 
in any true disaster, you have moments of just pure, utter insanity. And so in a moment of pure, utter insanity, she gets promoted to E4 and hopefully goes to Sergeant. Um, and it is a, uh, it's a very, very bizarre scene for book. It was necessary to get her promoted to E4 so she could forge him. Um, but it's also a very poignant moment in the book because it, it, and it was drawn from historical examples, by the way, of just how screwed up things are when everything is coming apart. Uh, when everything is coming apart, there are just there are just moments where the strangest and weirdest. Um, uh, and so you had in the first book the lost gentleman. And, uh, and and that was actually taken from an example in the British Expeditionary Force World War II. But there are multiple examples of that sort of bizarre moment happening when there's just nothing left to do, but everything is um, and And people who are used to being the ones who are in charge and fixing the situation, the situation is just unfixable, and they just collapse and go longer. Um, so, anyway, the the whole list, it, it's also kind of a dig on the Skippy list. Not a dig, but a joke on the Skippy list. It's all the things that Mastroga is not supposed to do in a zombie apocalypse. And some of them are actually things that she was not supposed to do in the army. Um, the early ones <laughs> are the reasons that when Mastroga was active duty, she was transferred out of an airborne. And I didn't actually manage to slip in all of the things the Stroga is not allowed to do while being in the Air Force unit. But it ends with a private Stroga is no longer allowed to be in it or or be associated with Air Force because she she was a leg um, she was a leg clerk that was uh, in an, uh, an airborne force, and so she would do a lot of things through with territory. Um, you know, one of the early ones is Private Estroga is not permitted to walk away from a set of personnel shoes whistling and ostentatiously closing a knife. Um, and for for people who don't know anything about parachute, you know, it's very, very easy to damage parachutes in such a way as it doesn't work, uh, especially if you have a knife. And all you got to do is damage a static one. Just cut it, just cut it a little bit, and it will snap, and your chute doesn't. So, um, walking away from a pile of parachutes while ostentatiously closing a knife and whistling, and your leg—it's like, oh, you motherfucking bitch! Because <laughs> now you've got to go through every parachute and check it very carefully. Uh, <laughs> But John, uh, John, despite her being an, an admin specialist, she's she's like a forty-two Bravo or forty-two Lima. Like she tells her uh, her sergeant, "I've got the soul of an eleven Bravo of an infantryman," because she wants to get stuck in. She's not a wilting willy. No, she's not a wilting willy at all. Um, uh, that's based on on uh, 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 a guy I knew who referred to himself as a sleeper operator. Which, Mike, from your perspective, you might kind of take that as an insult. But uh, the the guy was a clerk. All that he did when he was in the military was be a clerk. 
and he never actually got assigned to any of the operator units. However, whenever he went through any, you know, had any chance to go through advanced training, the advanced trainers would look at him and go, why aren't you an operator? Because the guy was just absolutely freaking deadly at infantry skills, but his job was being a clerk. <laughs> you know, he, he was one of those guys that he would always clear a room perfectly. Every shot hit perfectly. Uh, you know, every single motion that he did, it was like he was a freaking Delta. But he was a 71 Lima. You know, he was a clerk type. Um, and so, the, you know, the question was, why don't you go operate? He's like, yeah, I'm just doing four years. And I'm like, yeah, why shouldn't I? Um, but uh, anyway, that's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, Go ahead. One, one, one of the nice things about about Specialist Astroga's do's and don'ts for the zombie apocalypse is that it it did two things. First, a lot of those rules are are really quite real. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them. There's there's more than a grain of truth and practical information being offered. But um, second of all, it was a chance to introduce some levity, because there are parts of the book that are just really, really dark. And um, one of the things that marks John's, marks John's universe as so fascinating, why so many folks want to contribute and work with John and collaborate in this, not just for anthologies, but for, for novels for that matter, is that it's a thinking person's, a competent person's zombie apocalypse that features a way upwards and outwards back into the light of civilization back into the rule of law that distinguishes us from, you know, the medieval period and feudal society and, and all that crap. And uh, as a result, that, that journey is super, parts of it are super dark. So levity is critical, but these, these do's and don'ts, there's a bit of, there's some practicality in there, especially if you're a relatively junior person who ends up, instead of working at arm's distance from a relatively senior person, you're now working in their, their hip pocket. You're on the bench seat behind them in the suburban in the zombie apocalypse. And so uh, we had a lot of fun, not just with, uh, with uh, Gary Poole and with John, both former um, uh, specialists, but with also members of John's reading public that had that Army experience. And we asked them, hey, what do you remember as being a do's and don'ts back when you were a spec four or things that pissed you off? My son, active duty uh, sailor, is a uh, third-class study officer, Navy version of an E4. And uh, he gave me some insight into the Navy version, his favorite being, you know, when uh, when my officer uh, asks for details, I got to remind him. You know, sir, if you ask that and I tell you, you can no longer claim you didn't know. And <laughs> that made it into a Stroga's rules, for example. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I, hey, I, uh, John, maybe you could. Uh, um, I got five minutes left on this conference call that I reserved. <laughs> uh, maybe you could sum up, and I can, uh, and, and we can. Uh, well. River of Night is already selling really well. Uh, feedback on it, reviews of it have been excellent. Um, if it, it's a thinking person zombie environment, and this book doesn't even involve a whole heck of a lot of the zombies. It's more about uh, how the characters interact in, in trying to rebuild and in trying to grab, trying to grab as much as they can that is falling and keep it crashing all the way to the ground so they can bring it back up. Um, you know, not stealing it, 
but from the point of view of how do we bring back civilization. And electricity is a big part of that. So the aspect of securing the dam, making sure that it's safe, making it operating, uh, you know, fairly central. Yeah, and you do kill a lot of zombies with that dam, don't you? <laughs> yeah, well, then they figure out that they can kill zombies in job lots with the dam, and that, that <laughs> also is very effectively. So, well, the book is very uh, yeah, it's really cool. But you gotta you gotta check out the um, finale of this book. Even if you just read it backwards, you gotta read the book. anyway. It's a great it's a great um, addition to the Black Tide Rising series. No, don't read it backwards. Of course not, unless you're a proofreader. So. <laughs> But the book is River of Night. It is at booksellers everywhere. It is number one uh, science fiction bestseller in the nation right now. Um, and John and Mike, thank you so much for uh, telling us all about it. Okay. My pleasure. I'll talk to you next time. That was part two of a two-part interview with John Ringo and Mike Massa, authors of River of Night. Part one is available last time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. The Keeper slowly withdrew his hand. Please, Ashok, if you wish to meet the Prophet, this is the only way. If you draw too much attention to my people, you will endanger them. I can't allow that. But this is fraud. What the hell is wrong with you? Thera snapped. Then, exasperated, she turned on Keita. What's his problem? It takes time to adjust to a new sit. The problem should be obvious, Ashok said through gritted teeth. No barge-riding lawbreaker could possibly understand that lying left a taste in his mouth worse than the fish he'd tried to eat. I'm an untouchable. I can't use forged papers. I can't wear the insignia of another caste. But you can slaughter whole villages. You can execute women and children, she snapped. 
a monster who can slice the limbs off the relatives of lawbreakers just to send a message. Can't wear someone else's shirt. To hell with your law, protector. Ashar couldn't believe his ears. In his world, no one openly disparaged the law. In his mind's eye, he saw her severed head bouncing across the deck and into the river. But his mission required him to keep his anger in check, so he did. Thera remained there, glaring at him, strangely defiant. Thera, stop, Keita implored. There's no need. It's fine. Ashok took a deep breath. This was so hard. She had no idea how thankful she would be that he always followed orders. When it came to punishment, Omand was an artist. It wasn't just the big things, but the indignity of the simple. Thank you for the clothing. Thera stomped off without another word. Ashok watched her go. Keita looked like he wanted to say something, perhaps make up some excuses. But he refrained, which was a good thing right then. What's her purpose here? Ashok asked. She keeps me safe. Since she tempts me to kill all of you, she's very bad at it. The city of Apura was the last Vidal holding before entering Thau lands. Borders shifted as the houses rose and fell in power, constantly struggling for land and resources. Before the Thau had claimed the hills to the south, the violent Somsak had ruled the region, and many battles had been fought against Vidal over ownership of Red Lake. The huge lake had earned its name centuries ago after a terrible raid had turned into a slaughter through the city, and the Somsak had hurled thousands of corpses into the lake. It was said that they had spilled so much blood in the water that it had attracted demons all the way from the sea. There could be no doubt that Bidea's messy end and the shocking revelation that their bearer was an untouchable had weakened his old house, but for now, Vidal remained stronger than their southern neighbor. However, seeing how tense the locals were indicated that something was going on. The soldiers patrolling the docks were nervous and numerous, as if they expected a raid at any time. Ashok hadn't been keeping up on current events. Spending a year in prison had that effect on a man. He watched a squad of grey-clad soldiers jog down the cobbled street. They were wearing all their armor, but with none of the frivolous ornamentation typical of the warrior caste in peacetime. Their packs were heavy, as if they were expecting to be cut off from resupply and would have to make a go of it on their own for a long time. House Thau wasn't normally very aggressive, but Sonobat and Vulcan were, and it wouldn't surprise him to see the poorer house try to take territory while Vidal was distracted. It smells like there's a war brewing. I suspect there are troops massing on the other side of the border. Ashok warned Keita as the two of them walked along the wooden planking of the river docks. We should find out before trying to cross into the hill country. Thera knows who to ask. As a keeper of names, I'm supposed to be far beyond petty partisan politics. Keita sniffed. Don't start putting on airs. If I recall the history I was allowed to learn, wasn't the old priesthood cast down because they turned to evil and made asses of themselves?
something like that. Pride leads to wickedness, even for those who start with the best intentions, Keita said pointedly. But I was trying to make a joke. Come, sit, we'll wait for her here. Ashok put down the box concealing Angruvadal, and the two of them sat in the shade of some ragged tarps, killing time until Thera returned with her fraudulent papers. Apura was an old city, but it was a clean and orderly one. Since the fall of the Somsac, it had become a bustling hub of trade. It was predominantly a worker city, devoted to traffic and business, so it was crowded, loud, and busy. Most of the city's decoration came in the form of garish painted advertisements for goods and services. The two of them watched as hundreds of castless moved cargo back and forth. I never understood raids, Keita said after a few minutes had passed. You people are always attacking each other. The untouchables usually remain beneath notice. Their masters change, but the day-to-day -day misery of life goes on. I don't know why you bother. I suppose the warriors need something to do. But there are rules. The law sets limits on the frequency and numbers involved. A house war is different. It is total war, without constraint. Nothing is held back. If gains are to be made, then they must happen before the capital becomes involved. If Adal is seen as weak or distracted, it wouldn't surprise me to see Thao try to claim this leg. Ashok waved his hand toward the multitude of barrels and crates being loaded and unloaded. Then all the taxes on these goods would fill Thao's coffers instead of Vidal's. You only risk an unapproved war if the rewards are greater than the potential sanctions. Sanctions? Protectors. No one breaks up a fight quite like my old order. The Firsters and their rules. Even rules about murdering each other and stealing their land. Well, as long as everyone remains polite about it, then by all means, carry on. Ashok was weary of killing his peers, especially when he didn't see a point to it. We'll be careful. I've no doubt I could destroy a small raiding party, but you ask me to keep a low profile. I don't think you want me to cut my way through a legion. That's very considerate of you. But according to what I've heard since we've landed, there haven't been any raids. Yes, Ashok, even the castlers can pay attention to politics when those politics mean their huts might get burned down. Keita gave a small nod toward where several soldiers were walking along the planks, examining the laborers. I think all those extra patrols are looking for you. With his hair long and unkempt, and his beard grown out, it was doubtful anyone would recognize him. The only people who knew him well enough enough like that to give a good description would be Jagdish and the Coldstream Guards. They'll have no luck with me looking like any other castless scum. Keita snorted. Yes, because the castless have such a problem being heavy with muscle from all that extra meat they've eaten over the years. You call yourself castless, but you don't carry yourself like one. Considering your early years were spent as malnourished as mine, I'm amazed you're so tall. Yes, I am bursting with good fortune. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. 
And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and the podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a ticket for an express transport down the long arm of the Milky Way, 40 billion sky miles included, plus thanks and praise for John Ringo and Mike Massa, authors of River of Night. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.